Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Wednesday morning Bible study. We are so glad that you have joined us. This week, we are doing a walkthrough of 1 Timothy. If you remember last week, we gave an overview of 1 Timothy, and what we said about 1 Timothy, its uniqueness, first of all, it's called a pastoral epistle, because this letter is not addressed to a church, but it's addressed to an individual. This time, it's addressed to Timothy, who is a pastor, an overseer of the church of Ephesus that had really come in and taken Paul's place as the leader of the church at Ephesus. And this is a letter we said last week that was from Paul to Timothy. However, the words that were spoken to Timothy also would come through Timothy to the church as well. So this letter, even though it is personal in nature and obtains and, and, or, or has some personal words to Timothy, it also contains words that are to the church at Ephesus as well. So as we set that up last week, we're going to this week look into the text of 1 Timothy and do a walkthrough through 1 Timothy. Uh, first of all, we have a salutation. We begin in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, with a salutation, very familiar. One thing Paul does here is he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ. And he addresses it to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, even though Paul and Timothy are in such a close relationship, Paul emphasizes these two things. He emphasizes his apostleship, which carries authority, and also emphasizes Timothy as his true son or as his, his legitimate child, which would not only give Paul's authority, but also would show the delegated authority that Timothy has to stand in Paul's place over this church in an authoritative way. Because again, the whole crux of this letter of 1 Timothy is what is going on in the church. And what is going on in the church is false teachers are teaching others in the church and leading them astray, especially the younger widows and women who in turn are going from house to house, spreading the gossip and spreading this false teaching as well. So if Timothy is going to address false teachers then he has the authority of the Apostle Paul and the stamp of the Apostle Paul with him so that when he speaks to the church these corrective words, then they would carry more weight. So even though it seems like a basic salutation, uh, there's something deeper there as well. As we continue on in chapter 1, we see verses 3 through 20. In verses 3 through 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is the first charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And it's also the warning of the false teachers as well. Uh, this first charge, which is renewed in verse 18, reminds Timothy of his duty to stop the false teaching, which it goes on to describe in verses 4 through 11. Paul then points out his own testimony in verses 12 through 17, and the gospel is, you know, emphasized and articulated here uh, as emphasizing Paul's apostleship as well. Um, three things that are set in place here in these verses of chapter 1. First of all, is reminding Timothy of his charge of being left in Ephesus. 
the setting uh, out for the sake of the church, the fact that these false teachers are in error, and then contrasting the false teachers with Paul's true teaching of the gospel. So that's what we see here. Let's just point out a few of these verses in chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus, so that, and here's why, here's Timothy's charge, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So that's going to set the tone for the entire letter. So when we read this entire letter, everything is going to be tied back to these false teachers and Timothy's charge against the false teachers. Now, in describing the false teachers, verse 4 says um, that they should not teach false doctrines, they should not devote themselves to myths, they should not devote themselves to endless genealogies, they should not promote controversial speculations in the place of advancing God's work, He says, some have departed from the truth of the gospel, verse 6 says. Some have turned to meaningless talk, for they want to be teachers of the law. But he says, they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Uh, So we see here, we see the words myth, Endless genealogies, controversial speculations, departing from the truths of the faith, meaningless talk, wanting to be teachers of the law, but not even knowing what they are talking about. So this sets up kind of what these false teachers are doing. So obviously they're using uh, the law in order to teach that, along with myths and genealogies and controversies uh, and throwing people into confusion and false teaching that is opposite of the gospel. Paul sets out in verse number 8, and he says, you know, the law is good if one uses it uh, properly, you know, the way that the law has been intended to use in the light of Jesus Christ. And then going down through verse number 12, he says, I think Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength and considered me trustworthy. So now he's, now he's you know, coming against uh, the false teachers by using his own uh, ministry calling from what God has done in his life. He goes on to say in verse 13, I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. So Paul says, that's who I was. You know, because uh, in the previous few verses that we just read after verses number eight and nine, he talks about the law is for the lawbreakers, the rebels, the ungodly, the sinful. And he gives this list of people. And then he, and he's really including himself. He says, I was one of those. I was a blasphemer, I was violent, I was a persecutor. But he says in verse number 13, but I was shown mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. He turned his life around. He says, the grace of our Lord was poured upon me abundantly. And he says in verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying. Now Paul's going to use that phrase, here's a trustworthy saying, three times in this letter. Here is a trustworthy saying and full of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the worst, he goes on to say. 
He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his eminent patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Paul's saying, I'm the proof that the gospel can change somebody's life from a blasphemer, from a violent person. So Paul's contrasting his own life, who has been changed from these things, into the apostle he's called to be. The gospel did that. The gospel changed his life. So he's contrasting that with who these false teachers are and what they are doing. They are not teaching the gospel. They are not leading people into the truth of salvation of Jesus Christ. They are leading people away. So this is, and Timothy's charge is to come against these false teachers so that they may not teach false doctrines any longer. So this is the first charge from Paul to Timothy. As we go on into chapter 2, chapter 2 brings up uh, community prayer uh, that we are to pray for everyone and for all people because God wants all people to be saved and Christ was sacrificed for all people. And then that's followed by instruction about the proper demeanor in prayer. Uh, Men are to lift up uh, their hands that uh, has not been filled with disputings and, and anger, such as the false teachers. Uh, the women are not to dress, are there to dress appropriately and put on and wear good deeds, um, as contrasted with the influence of some of the younger widows, as, as we will see. Uh, Paul forbids these women to teach. Many of them have been deceived, and they've accepted the false teaching. Uh, and Paul C. goes on to say about the younger widows that they have even uh, been gone after Satan, after the way of Satan. So he forbids these women uh, to teach. So it's taking up these issues here as in the church. So let's read some of this. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercessions be made for all people, kings, those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's putting this in here because, as we mentioned last week in our introduction, you know, some of these, this false teaching and, and can lead to an exclusive type of religion where we are the only ones with the truth and nobody else is included. So we have a special revelation. So Paul's saying the gospel isn't exclusive. The gospel isn't for a small group of people. That the gospel is for everybody. So we should pray for everybody. We should pray for everybody because God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He says in verse number 5, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And he gave himself a ransom for all people. So if Christ gave himself for all people, God wants all people to be saved. Therefore, we should pray for all people, and the gospel should be for all people. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse number 7. He says, For this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle so that I can go to the Gentiles for all people to be saved. 
I mean, so you can kind of, you know, read some of this. You know, these false teachers, they wanted to be teachers of the law, uh, but they really didn't understand the law. They're excluding people. They could have been excluding uh, Gentiles or, some, or a special form of religion of Christianity mixed with Judaism that was only for a small group of people that adhered to the law. Uh, so this is what we can, you know, take from the text and put together what these false teachers were doing. So then Paul talks about, uh, you know, the, the people in the church, and he says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. That's the disposition that the men should have. He says, I want the women to dress modestly and decent, to not adorn themselves with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. That's not what should be important in the life of people. So he's saying, you know, men should not be, you know, angry and disputing. They should be able to lift up hands purely. So men shouldn't be brawlers or these type of people, and, and the women shouldn't be overly concerned with how they look or what they, or what they wear or their hair. He said they should be clothed with good deeds because that's what's important. So what's important for the women is they be clothed with good deeds. What's important for the men is that they're able to lift up holy hands without wrath or disputing, that, that they are to be peaceable in the world as well. And then in verses 11 through 15, uh, probably some of the most controversial uh, verses that there are in the Bible and in the church today. Um, and there are many different interpretations of these verses. Uh, these verses say, we'll read this in verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So this is a loaded, I heard someone say that this is a loaded bomb of scriptures and churches today. You know, obviously, uh, your more fundamentalist Christians will take this and say, you know, women shouldn't speak in church. Women should be quiet. Women should always be in submission. Women should never uh, teach. And that's what the Bible says. That's what we believe. And that's the end of, of that. Uh, so you have there a religion that is, you know, male-dominated over women. Uh, then you have others that offer, you know, other interpretations as well. Here's what I would say, and we're not going to spend a lot of time in this because we are, you know, just doing an overview. But here's what I would say of this. You can't divorce a text from its context. You can't separate a text from its context. So you can't just take women be silent and say, therefore women should be silent. Uh, you have to look at the context. Uh, in Ephesus, we know in Ephesus several things about, about Ephesus. First of all, in the church at Ephesus, we know about the false teachers. And what were the false teachers doing? The false teachers, as we'll see uh, in the next couple of chapters, were going into the houses of women especially into the houses of younger widows. And many of them were falling for the false teaching, and they were going around to other houses repeating the same things and repeating the same teachings, obviously to lead others astray. And also in Ephesus, uh, you know, you had pagan worship as well. Uh, if you've never heard of the Artemis cult, that was in Ephesus at the time. Uh, Artemis was a female goddess, uh, and she became known as the goddess of childbearing. 
And, you know, the emphasis of this female uh, Artemis cult was ultimately that women are superior to men with the emphasis on the women's looks and, and their hair and their jewelry and their authority, that they were to have authority, you know, over men. So you're dealing with something that's very cultural. Uh, so you have those that say, you know, it's God's word. You know, the Bible says women should be silent. Women should be silent. And then you have, you know, others that say, you know, and that I would caution, you know, we need to look at the text to first of all see what Paul was saying because Paul, you know, is not necessarily writing. You know, opponents of the fundamentalists would say Paul isn't necessarily writing. You know, a church manual here. He's dealing with church mess, and in the middle of dealing with church mess, this is how. Paul uh, confronts the mess that is going on in the church. Uh, so some of the things that we're talking about here, uh, the women should learn in quietness and full submission. So he says, first of all, women should be learners. Women should be learners. They should be, uh, have a gentle and a quiet spirit that they may learn and receive the true teaching of the Word. Uh, and obviously here you have women who are not learned, that were going around teaching others what the false teachers were saying to them. So Paul's saying, I'm not permitting these women to teach or to assume authority. The King James says to usurp authority. This word authority here is probably one of the hearts of the matter in this text. The word authority here is only used one time in the Bible, and it's right here in 1 Timothy. It's not used in any other, you know, text. And the word authority, exousia, is used many times. Uh, but often teo, which is the Greek word used here, is only used one time. And it literally comes from two words to meaning to, to self-arm, to arm oneself or to take up arms. And it means to take up arms in order to seize or take charge. It's these women that had been under the influence of the false teachers, possibly under the influence of the Artemis cult, uh, that were taking up arms, if you will, to seize and usurp the authority of the church. To, take, to usurp means to take a position illegally or by force. Uh, and then if you notice here, and he goes back in verse 13 and 14, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And again, if you know, your, you know, your, your literalist fundamentalist will say, well, you know, the Bible says women should keep silent. They should be in submission of men. They shouldn't teach. And Adam and Eve proves it because, you know, Adam was, was created first. He wasn't the one that was deceived. So men should have, you know, authority over women and women should be submissive to men. However, I think there's a key word that is the key word in these two scriptures, 13 and 14. 13 says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, for Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. I think the word deceived there is a key word because what were these false teachers doing? They were trying to deceive these women and these women were then being deceived and they were going to house to house with the same talk, the same gossip, the same teaching as the false teachers. So I think that's key. So I believe what Paul is dealing with here, uh, because we know in other places when we were in 1 Corinthians, we talked in 1 Corinthians where, uh, you know, in chapter 14, women should remain, you know, silent in the church. Uh, but Paul also said earlier in 1 Corinthians that every woman who prays and prophesies in the church should have her head covered. 
So we know by Paul's own writing that women prayed in the church, they prophesied in the church. So obviously when Paul says women are to, you know, keep silent, don't permit a woman uh, to teach, she must be quiet, he's not talking for all times because in other places he does permit them. They pray and prophesy in the church, but again, they do it under authority. They do it under authority as in what uh, 1 Corinthians talked about. And we talked about the abuse when we got to chapter 14. You know, we talked about the, uh, what was going on in that day. So, again, Paul's not writing a manual. You know, you know, women should always keep silent. You know, and sometimes we take parts of these verses as well. We take one part here and one part there. And, you know, well, you know, I don't know any churches that a woman can't even speak at all in. So we do let women speak in church. We do let women teach in church. And, but then other parts will. So you see, we have to be consistent. And the way I believe that we are consistent, I know I didn't mean to spend all this time on this, but the way we be consistent is to interpret a text within the context. To interpret the text within the context. So we have a lot of context going on here. So I believe what we're dealing with here is we have women who were being deceived, women who were being deceived by the false teachers who were going around and spreading this false teaching, probably having some of the ideas that came from the, the pagan world that they were to assert authority over a man and, um, and to take charge. And Paul was setting the order in the church so that this false teaching, because remember what I said, everything in the letter goes back to command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So everything goes. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. And really that makes sense out of verse 15, because verse 15 has been a very, you know, what in the world is this talking about verse? Verse 15 says, but women will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean a woman can't be saved until she has a child? Well, no, not at all. So we're asking, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, certainly it means, I believe, coming from, again, the pagan culture of that day. Uh, the Artemis goddess of childbearing, you know, many people would look to her for, and the word saved here is not eternal salvation. It's not eternal salvation. To save means to deliver. It means to be kept safe. It means to be protected. So many people would appeal to the, the goddess of childbearing to be protected and brought safe through childbearing. You know, and I believe Paul could be alluding to, you know, women will be saved, protected, brought safe, and delivered through childbearing, not through a cult of Artemis, but by continuing in faith and love with propriety. So again, faith and love that Jesus is the one, you know, that brings them saved, not this cult. So again, when you're reading a letter, you're reading mail between two people and they also, and they have information we don't have. Uh, so I think it's best always to look at the context, you know, not jump and make something or not take one verse and make it a rule for all people of all time without first looking at the context. And then when we have similar situations in our day, then the word of God through Paul to them is the word of God to us today and the same principles apply within the situations. So I like to keep it right in, in the middle where you know context meets truth and then application is brought forth. And going on into chapter 3, I know I spent a good deal of time on that, but going on to chapter 3, we have the qualifications for overseers and deacons. 
Now, the church at that time was set up differently than you know, some churches were set up today. The church was basically uh, a home churches, a group of home churches that were set up. And when the apostle, let's say the apostle Paul would go into a city, he would uh, win people to Jesus, he would plant a church, then he would ordain uh, elders and overseers in the church, and then deacons would also as well. The overseers um, were the pastors of the church, or the bishops of the church, if you will, the overseers. Um, then you had the, the plurality of elders. Elders were to govern the church, handle the business of the church. Then they ordained deacons. The church selected deacons, and the deacons were to serve the people in the church. So you had the overseers, uh, then you had the, the governing elders, and then you had the deacons who were the servants. So what's going on here, as we mentioned last week, is that the false teaching isn't coming from outside into the church. It's originating from inside the church with these church leaders, with these elders or deacons or overseers that were in the church teaching the people, but they were teaching them false doctrine. So to confront the false elders and the false deacons, Paul is now giving Timothy qualifications for what true bishops and overseers and deacons are, who they are. Now, the interesting thing about this, um, these are character qualifications in chapter 3. Uh, they are not, here's what a deacon does. Here's what an elder does. Here's what an overseer does. Here's their job description. It's not a job description because the problem in Ephesus wasn't they weren't doing their job. It was their character. And their character was causing them to be led astray, first of all, themselves with false teaching and then to lead others astray. So the problem was with their character. So these qualifications here are character qualifications. So in chapter 3, verse 1, we have the second time that Paul writes to Timothy and says, here is a trustworthy saying. He says, whoever aspires to be an overseer, uh, verse 2 says, should be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness or violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his family well. His children should obey him and must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Uh, it goes on to say he must not be a recent convert uh, so that he will not become conceited. He should have a good reputation with outsiders so he will not fall into disgrace. So again, the qualifications for uh, overseers are these character qualifications that go against the character of the false teachers. He goes on in verse 8, the same way deacons must be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They may hold the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, let them serve as deacons. Uh, and then verse 11 says, in the same way women, now some translate this deacons' wives, some tra translates this women deacons. Uh, there's no word for Wife, the same word that's used for wife in, in Greek is used for, for women, so that's where the dispute is. This means deacons' wives or women deacons. But either way, it says in the same way, uh, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy in everything. Uh, the deacon must be faithful to his wife. He must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. So here we have uh, the qualifications. Again, it ties back 
to chapter 1, verse 3. Commands certain people they should not teach false uh, doctrines any longer. And goes on to you know, give their uh, description. And it goes back here. So the false teachers have direct impact on what is being said here in chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, 14 through chapter 4, verse 5 is the purpose of the letter. Uh, Paul writes so that God's people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household. Uh, they are to be God's pillar that preserves the mystery from which the true godliness springs forth. Um, so in verse number 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, uh, but I'm writing these instructions so that if, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. And then he goes on to uh, talk about this mystery, and it's Jesus Christ, that people should be behaving themselves and be conducting themselves in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. It says, he appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels, he was preached among the nations, he was believed in the world, and he was taken up to glory. There we see that everything should be rooted in Jesus Christ, that people ought to know how to conduct themselves. But not everybody was rooted in Jesus Christ, and not everybody was conducting themselves in a way worthy. So in chapter 4, verse 1, that's why Paul says, The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. They order them from uh, abstaining from certain foods, which God said is, is good. So here you see... In chapter 4, he's still talking about the false teachers. Now, another thing we need to just put out there, chapter 4, verse 1 says, the Spirit clearly says in the latter times. Now, Paul isn't speaking here, and we, I hear that a lot of times about the times we live in today. People will say, oh, look at how bad the world is around us. We must be living in the last days. Because Paul said in the last days, perilous times would come. So because there's perilous times, we have to be living in the last days. In chapter 4, Paul here, when he says last days, he is not thinking, his mind is not 2,000 years into the future. It's not. To Paul, when he says the Spirit clearly says in the last, latter times, he's speaking about the times he was living in. And he's warning Timothy that these things are happening now, then, you know, when he was writing this. Some will abandon the faith that's what he's been talking about the false teachers are doing. They will follow deceiving spirits. Paul will go on to say that some of these widows, that they have already turned away to follow Satan. He says they are and things that are taught by demons. That's the false teaching that Paul is commanding Timothy to address. So when Paul says here, you know, the Spirit says, especially in the latter times, he's not thinking 2,000 years into the future. Absolutely not. He's um, warning Timothy about what's going on right then and right there. For he goes on to they forbid people to marry. Um, you know, Timothy goes to tell the younger widows, do marry. Don't listen to these people that are forbidding you to marry. Do marry. So Paul's speaking to Timothy about then and there. So when he's speaking clearly in the latter times, he's speaking about their days then. Um, so that's verses 
1 through 5 in chapter 4. And verses 6 through 16 is a renewed charge to Timothy. A renewed charge. As in chapter 1, um, Timothy's charge is given over against the false teachers. Here we have the third trustworthy saying emphasizing Timothy's training in godliness. Um, and it holds promise for, for the life both present and that which is to come. And then, um, then he writes encouraging words to Timothy to bolster uh, Timothy's courage, to give him boldness in his task. So in verse number 6 um, of chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, if you point these things out, uh, you'll be a good minister. You'll be nourished on the truths of the face and on the good teaching that you have received. He said, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Again, opposed to the false teachers who are giving themselves to these things. He says, our physical training has some value, but godliness is valuable for all things. Uh, verse number nine, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. That's why we labor and we strive. That's why we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people. He goes back to that all people again. Who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. So Paul says in verse 11, command and teach these things. Now, th now, these are probably, now these are very personal words, probably the most personal words um, in the letter here as far as to Timothy. He says in verse 12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Set yourself as an example against the false teachers. Don't let them move you. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Because the public reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching will bring truth where false teachers are bringing lies. He says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He says, don't neglect the gift that is in you. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. You be an example. He says in verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may witness your progress. And then he tells him, verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Preserve or persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So he's telling Timothy, you stay grounded. You stay grounded in your life. You stay grounded in the word. You stay grounded in your conduct. You stay grounded in your character. And people will see you as an example as opposed to the false teachers. And they'll see the truth that is in you and the truth that is in you will expose the faults that is in them. Then he goes into chapter 5 here. He goes into chapter 5. And as he goes into chapter 5, chapter 5 is going to um, uh, focus on the groups that are having the most issues. And that are these elders and these younger widows. Uh, the younger widows, in light of the character of the true widows, uh, Paul's going to differ between the true widows and the, the younger widows, and then the, uh, the elders, 
As with the widows, the discipline of the straying ones is set up by way of contrast to those who are doing, the elders who are doing their work well. So again, notice the contrast in chapter 5. Contrast the, the older widows who are widows indeed to the younger widows who are causing problems. And Paul urges the younger widows to marry, to bear children, and to basically uh, stay at home and quit going from house to house and spreading this stuff. With the elders, he contrasts the elders who are doing good to the elders who are uh, teaching and causing problems. So in chapter 5, verse 1, you know, he lays out the principle. He says, do not rebuke uh, an older man, but exhort him as if you were his father. Treat younger men as brothers. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So he's, again, training Timothy in how to treat all the different groups that he's going to have to deal with. So don't rebuke the older ones harshly. Exhort them as if they were a father. Uh, treat the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, but yet be pure in your relationship with them. Uh, he goes on to talk about the widows who are really in need. Uh, he says, give proper recognition to the widows who are really in need. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family as they are repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. So you had widows who had family that their families should be caring for because their parents and grandparents have cared previously for them. Uh, then it says in verse 5, the widow who is really in need and left all alone, well, she puts her trust and her hope in God and continues night and day to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead while she lives. So you have uh, the widows who have nobody and they depend on God and their relationship is with God. But then you have widows who live for pleasure. And it says them, for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, has been known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So he's showing the true widow uh, in need, the true widow, uh, who was one that was over a certain age, whose life has been proven by how she lived her life. So he's showing the, the true godly widow. Now he's going to contrast in verse 11 with the younger widows. For the younger widows do not put on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. It says, that thus they bring judgment upon themselves. They've broken their first pledge. He says, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but they become busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows, marry, have children, manage your homes, give the enemy no opportunity for slander, for some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Some have already turned away. And then he turns his attention to the elders. In verse 17, the elders 
who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honors. Just as you had good godly widows, you have good godly elders. And the godly elders who direct the affairs of the church well, they are worthy of double honor. Especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading grain. The worker deserves uh, his wages. He says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, so you have the good elders who are worthy of much honor. Then you have the elders who are sinning. He says, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality. He says, do not be hasty in laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourself, Timothy, pure. And then he goes on to talk about uh, masters and slaves, the beginning of verse number six. He says in um, verse number two, the last part of verse number two of chapter six, these are things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree, to the sound instruction of our Lord, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. Again, he's going back to talk about the false teachers. That result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant frictions. Uh, and they believe that godliness is a means to financial gain. But Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothes, we should be content with that. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap. And he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So again, at the heart of these false teachers is greed. It's greed. And Paul tells Timothy, and he warns them against the destructive nature of greed. So in verse number 11 through 20 is the final charge to Timothy. And the final charge to Timothy says, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness. Don't don't be pursuing greed and gain. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. He says, I charge you, in verse number 13, to keep this command without spot or blame. And then he tells, in verse 17, again he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in riches, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So he's, he's, instead of saying, don't, instead of saying those that chase after gain, Those that chase after being rich and put their hope in riches, you put your hope in God. And encourage those that that have riches, don't put your hope in your riches. Put your hope in God for he is rich and he richly blesses us with all the things that we need. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, not rich in money. He says, tell those who are rich in money, don't put your hope in your money and don't boast in your money but be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. This way they will lay up treasures for themselves, a firm foundation for the coming age. And then in verse 20, he says, Timothy, these words just really speak to me. 
He's written this whole letter. And then he uses Timothy's name. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. What's been entrusted to his care? Paul's flock at Ephesus, who Paul loves deeply and who Paul is hurt because many in the church are being led astray. False teachers have come in. Listen to these words. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Guard the church. Guard the church against the false teachers. Guard the church that you've been entrusted with against the false teaching. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so, they have departed from the faith. Again, they are no longer teaching sound doctrine, but they're teaching they departed from the faith. Exactly what he said would happen in the latter days. Paul's talking about their day. And then he abruptly ends the letter with an abrupt, abrupt, abrupt sign-off. Grace be with you all. Notice the plural ending. The letter is written to Timothy, an individual, but again, it was words to Timothy, words that would come through Timothy. So Paul ends it with, grace be with you all, because these words are really for all of the church. So what I would encourage you in this letter is, um, you know, if you're a church leader, let this letter encourage you in your character. Let it challenge you in your character. Let it challenge you to be better. If you're a church leader, let it challenge you to uh, how you live your life, how you conduct your ministry, what's important, what is not important. Um, as pertains to the issues of this, again, um, I think we should connect everything back to the context of the letter. And then once, we, once we've got it in the context of the letter, then we bring application into our day. And um, I think we'll find a much deeper meaning when we do that. Instead of just pulling a verse from here and a verse from there and a verse from there and a verse from there and just saying, hey, well, this verse, here's a doctrine. Here's what Paul, let's, let's, again, read it as a whole. Let's keep in mind the context. Let's let the Word of God speak to us through the time that it was written there, that it may encourage us and speak to us and guide us in our day here. Well, we thank you so much for tuning in and watching us through uh, this First Timothy, again, to our class on Wednesday morning. Because of this uh, COVID-19 virus, we cannot meet in person. So this is the way that we have to come together. Uh, I miss you. Uh, I love you. Can't wait till, we'll all, till we are all back together. I'll probably want to go through all this again with you. Um, but I pray that you're listening to the, uh, the, the teachings and the videos, that you're downloading the lesson notes. Uh, if you need anything as far as lesson notes or anything, please contact us. And, uh, but again, we love you. We miss you. And... Um, Next week, we'll do an introduction to 2 Timothy. God bless.